If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites according to a recent Indeed survey. With Indeed, everything hiring is all in one place and it makes it so easy. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences each day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. The more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join the more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. Just go to Indeed.com slash podcast right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash podcast. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You're listening to the Unsung Podcast, where we talk about albums that we think are unsung classics, and then you guys tell us if you're right or wrong. This is the Unsung Podcast. episode 52 of the Unsung Podcast. That's right, folks, we've made it an entire year, 52 straight goddamn weeks without missing a beat. Thank you very much to everybody who's listened thus far. On last week's episode, we were discussing Emotion Side B by Carly Rae Jepsen. And the public have decided that Carly Rae Jepsen's Emotion Side B does not make it into a discography. So thank you very much to everybody who listened and voted. On this episode, we're discussing Meantime by Helmet. Enjoy. Hi, you're listening to Unsung Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Fraser, and I'm joined by two men who I've just found out, along with me, are now so old that we're actually like six months behind the latest memes. Uh, what have we just found out? That we're behind the latest memes. Six months at least. Oh, oh are we talking about a uh, Little Mix Jamaican accent yeah. one? Yeah, I only came across this last week and Chris only came across oh, this I mean, that, today. Six months is a compliment to me. I mean, <laughs> I, I would probably have been turning yeah. 50 and be like, uh, Mark, yeah, uh, have, you, have you seen Charlie bit my finger? <laughs> if you're not from Scotland, Scottish people by the time they get to 50 all sound like that. <laughs> like life expectancy is around about the high 40s. Um, yeah, apparently a little mix do a, a quality uh, impersonation of a Jamaican accent. It's fantastic. Uh, sitting to my right is Glasgow's greatest Jamaican impressionist, <laughs> Chris Cusack. <laughs> <laughs> what is it she does? And she goes, 
That's brilliant Go internet How old are we? (laughs) So good Uh, Sitting to my left Is the young Tory David Weaver Who refused to drink Despite the fact This is the last unsung Recording of 2018 Uh, We are going to do this episode And then we're going to do The unsung parts A and B Christmas special So drinks are flowing I do not see how that makes me A conservative Because you're Cautious and reserved and... Pro Brexit. Pro Brexit. In, in what way are the Conservatives this year being reserved and cautious? They're just like, Shh. Because you're reckless and internally conflicted and mm. you hate foreigners. He's <laughs> just about Tenerife, so he See, well, he, I suppose. He didn't argue with that. Oh, no, do you know what? Like, it's, it's weird. I've, I've just been in Tenerife for my Christmas night out. And uh, it's very weird that you go to... Europe and to the uh, resorts in Spain to find the most Brexity people on earth. That is My strange. God, some of the humans there are unbelievable. Just the absolutely. lack of self awareness is stunning. The it, Brits that are in Spain leeching off the superior Spanish health service. Like the fact that in Spain it's famous for uh, the quality of its surgery in particular. So as you get older, people move to Spain to try and match their operations, um, things like hip replacements and stuff like that, because the surgeons over there are notoriously good, and yet they still <laughs> have the audacity to vote for Brexit. <laughs> I don't want that paella stuff. <laughs> oh, country, bring our, bring our country under our laws, laws, country, oh, control. If you've never yeah. heard, uh, if you've never heard, uh, specifically an English person, okay, I'm going to be a little racist here. If you've never heard an English expat speaking Spanish, it's just English loudly. Cerveza, cerveza, a beer, yeah, one of those beer things, yeah. Is that Jamaican? Is that a little mixed Jamaican accent? <laughs> So yeah, uh, it's been quite a week in British politics, sort of somewhere between some mothers do Avam and uh, Thundercats. <laughs> Big apologies to all our English listeners. <laughs> yeah. on, also, I should have some to add, on the week where we were 94th in South Africa's Arts and Entertainment podcast on Spotify. That's amazing. That's pretty that good. Pretty good. <laughs> Thank you, South Africa. Thanks, Take everybody. back everything I said about you, Johnny. I'm, I'm not even going to try and do a South African accent. South Africa. <laughs> <laughs> that was not too bad. Diplomatic Actually, immunity. When I, when I went to New Zealand a couple of years ago, Is that I in South Africa? completely failed to be able to do a New Zealand accent and it just always came out as South African. I can, I can do one. Yeah. Now. yeah. Whenever I try to do an accent, I fuck it. Fucking prawns. Fucking prawns, bitch. Uh, This is the most Scottish moment of my life. I'm currently using an oat cake as a coaster for a glass of whiskey. (laughs) That's Irish whiskey, though, so... Oh, shit, it is. So I'm afraid it's just fully Celtic. That's the Celtic. Some kind of Brexit. Celtic And ginger beer, that's Jamaican. Fusion there. Oh, uh, it's true. And limes. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Where are they from? Uh, Sainsbury's. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, in the same week that David w- was in Tenerife sunning up, driving up and down mountains, I believe, uh, I was, if you remember last week, from a weird little run-in at the Arts Centre with that dapper... Uh, <laughs> I was like, I remember that's my... He's been asked that question before. Like, he's, oh, that's happened to him before. He just, like, offered a seat. Like, that's why he was so quick to answer. Because yeah. he's definitely been and asked that like, before. Yeah, it's just, a, it's just a prop walking <laughs> stick. Well, I just went around Glasgow for the last week kicking walking sticks away from people <laughs> trying to work out who's real and who's not. Turns out most of them are real. Um, uh, and they wanted a seat. Damn. <laughs> <laughs> By the, way, by the way, I deliberate, much like you, Mark, last week during the Carly Ray Jepsen, after you calmed down, 
I'm still not cam. The audience have no idea how much I cut out of that edit, by the way. <laughs> I was talking an hour and a half long. <laughs> I've, got, I've got a personal version of that that is just blue. I deliberately, much like Mark last week, uh, who chose not to listen to... Anything by Calorie Jefferson apart from the albums in question. <laughs> to, to, to stay innocent and, and untainted by the hipster credentials, uh, I didn't look at the results of our poll. So how is Carly doing? It's about 60-40 against at the moment. Praise be. By the time this comes out, it'll still be 60-40. <laughs> <laughs> it's had a few votes though. It has. There's been a lot of it, a lot of discussion about people who really fucking like it like Dave, which I'm impressed by. I think it was a good choice, Dave. Thanks. I'm actually sad it's not going to go in, even though I didn't like it, but I think it would have, <laughs> I think it would have been good for us if it was in there. Yeah, I know. What the you, fuck are you, you talking about? Things. It would have been good. It would be like, oh, those guys have got a bit of, you know, hipster credentials. Maybe no, we'll get, get in his put, put should have put Lerou in. No, absolutely not. She's like seven years out of date, mate. Well, hi-o. Uh, we have a certain feature in the for Christmas special. <laughs> <sighs> she may Maybe we she... could come to some sort of no deal or deal <laughs> thing. You get Carly, I get Carly and you get LaRue. Dave, you've, or... we, we all have a Christmas present where we can all put in one record in the Christmas special. Let's wait until next week to find out how that goes. Okay, let's, yeah, let's wait. I can't wait. Dramatically dragging down the overall quality of the discography <laughs> in the process. Um, okay, so this week, uh, to, to, to honour our first anniversary, we've not missed a week, by the way, folks. We would like your high fives for that because it's absolute madness. We've tried so hard to miss a week. Lots, yeah, lots and lots and lots of podcasts just occasionally miss week and even take summer holidays and all that. Yeah, we don't have enough of a back catalogue right now to just do like, we pulled our favourite episode out the vault. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we'll be doing that as soon as it's <laughs> respectable. Um, but uh, yeah, we, we haven't missed a week. So this is to celebrate our year. Uh, as you may or may not know, the, the name Unsung is the title of a song by the band Helmet. And we have opted to cover Helmet, uh, fittingly for that first birthday. Chris, you've, you've had a bit of a, a stoner for this for the last month or two, haven't you? <laughs> 52 weeks I've been resistant to this album. Yeah. <laughs> um, Helmet were a very, very influential band, but they're also a very complicated unit in terms of where they started, where they finished, and what happened along the way. And I think it, it bears some sort of dissection in that sense. I was really conflicted about what to put forward for this, okay? And accordingly, we left Carly Rae Jepsen a bit of a cl cliffhanger when I said, I don't know what album... I'm going to do and actually I, I genuinely didn't okay so they have one album that I think really stands out as a solid start to finish calling card of that band across the, some of their other material they have arguably a better album but mm -hmm. it's spread out and they've never quite attained the consistency or any number of combinations of factors to match that uh, we had people online taking a wee guess at what that might be. The main guess at what I was going to pick was actually surprisingly Betty, uh, which is their third album. It was the most lauded album by fans as well. It had the deluxe reissue, they toured anniversaries of it, that kind of thing. Which is not surprising in some ways. It was the highest charting album by Helmet. I think it went in at number 45. But it didn't sell anywhere near as much as Meantime. Which is their biggest selling album at over 2 million units And when you hear it, that's odd that an album that sounds like that sold over 2 million units I am personally a massive fan of their fourth album, Aftertaste uh, Which I think is incredibly underrated It's far more tuneful, less obstinate uh, And on the flip side of that, I am a fucking massive fan of their first album, uh, Strap It On I think Strap It On is astonishing and is raw 
and as primitive as it was, it still sounds incredibly fresh. I have chosen Meantime. Okay. Now, some folk will... Oh, for Meantime. Meantime is Helmet's best album, full stop. And I'm, I'm willing to back that up. Um, but I gave these guys a collection of other songs from, from drawn across, specifically the earlier part of their career. So there's also the phenomenon of Zombie Helmet. Zombie Helmet is what happened in 2004 when Helmet came back uh, with Size Matters and onwards in a, a series of albums with... Uh, diminishing Returns, uh, which really just an embodiment of Paige Hamilton and the Helmets. Paige Hamilton being the guy who started Helmet effectively um, and is the only remaining member to this day after a slew, like a revolving door of different people in various jobs. But Helmet, up until the time of Aftertaste, is a formidable band in the extreme. They redefined a lot of alternative rock. They brought elements of hardcore into something approximating the mainstream they brought elements of real eclecticism in terms of the timings Paige Hamilton was a trained jazz musician uh, he's worked as a jazz guitarist for many really respected collectives he's done soundtrack work he, he used that to inform uh, an early career that was incredibly uh, thickened uh, and I think it, they're a band that really deserve probably more plaudits than they even got in terms of their influence. Now, unfortunately, part of that influence includes the fact that Helmet are maybe as much as anyone responsible for new metal. They are oh. probably the first new metal band. Look, really. don't slag off an entire genre. We've, <laughs> you know, we've already discussed that there are some great things to come out of new metal. We must be them along with, I guess, Rage and If No More. And, and Metal Chilies to yeah, some extent yeah, as well. Then, the first new metal band. Early Corn, yeah. Well, Corn were new metal. Corn were like and the it, first new metal band that were new metal, but then those bands before sort of created the sound. Rocky kind of sound. Yeah, from yeah. Primus other... a bit as well. Primus have a little bit to bear with the kind yeah. of the funky kind of side of it. But anyway, Helmet and Faith No More are probably the two main offenders. Well, no, Helmet, Faith No More, and Radiance Machine um, are probably the, the three main offenders. And Paige Hamilton was really unhappy with that legacy. I mean, he he has said that he, he doesn't feel that new metal sounds like Helmet. Obviously, he, he doesn't feel that, but it does a lot. He of seems like a bit of a grumpy cunt. Is that a, a fact? fact? I've met him. He is a was bit. he a grumpy cunt? A wee bit. Well, let's not forget. This is one of the weird things about Paige Hamilton. He's fifty-eight. He was born in nineteen sixty, and he's still yeah. playing in a band that are like a full-on alternative rock and noise rock band. Yeah. Who who do you know from your life? So he, that's he, nearly sixty he was, years old. He was thirty-two when he was doing this. Well, he's still doing this. Yeah, but no, when this album came out, yeah, he was but, 32. I mean, he is literally still doing this. He's 58 years old right. and he's still going up there and playing things like Bad Mood. Yeah. And that's fucking crazy. Yeah, Just, but is that a good thing or a bad thing? I think it's a bad thing. Yeah, I would say that as uh, well. Bring it into your own life. Uh, who's 58 in your life and what are they doing right yeah, now? Yeah, no. <laughs> I, I love being into heavy music right now, but when I'm 58, I want to be a jazz man. <laughs> I want to... Well, I he wa- started as a jazz man I want my blood, backwards. I want my blood type to be port. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to listen to fucking Miles Davis. That's pretty much it. Like, nice. how, how weird is that, that Paige Hamlin, as a young man, started as a jazz musician and has now 
now at the age of 58 <laughs> become like a kind of stodgy metallic rocker that, that, that is the weird part of it I think it's quite interesting because obviously he started off with the first couple of records obviously this one like having a lot of the jazz feel to the playing so he's kind of taking that and obviously mired it with what he thought or what was at the time heavy music and hardcore but somewhere along the way he's not changed and just, everything else has uh, yeah and it's kind of become really weird in that sense that's a really interesting phenomenon with Helmet because it seems to me like Paige Hamilton and Helmet have become almost synonymous or certainly to him my argument would be that they're not to myself and probably most of the real hardcore fans Helmet is John Stanier, Henry Bogdan and Paige Hamilton mm-hmm. yeah when I was listening to this record Paul one McGee. of the things that popped out to me is like I don't really understand why those two guitars other than the fact it's just for heaviness a lot of the time they're doing, most of the time they're doing the same thing. Well, he said when they came to do Aftertaste, they recorded Aftertaste as a trio, and he literally was quoted as saying, I don't need two guitarists to record this mm-hmm. band. He's like, I'll do everything. And then they brought Chris Trainer from Orange 9mm in and the second guitar. But Helmet are an example of a guy who started to identify himself with this thing to a point where he wasn't necessarily able to extricate himself from that. And despite doing loads of other things, touring with David Bowie, he toured as a guitarist for David Bowie in 1999. But Paige Hamilton seems unwilling to accept that Helmet is dead. I, I mean, they scraped a decent, passable album, let's say, uh, together in the form of Size Matters. And a lot of that uh, was the result of a bunch of demos for a project called Gandhi that never really materialised. The, the band clearly has, I think in most people's eyes, run its course. People that still buy their records are picking through increasingly superfluous stuff to find nourishment and you kind of wish that a zombie helmet would just get a fucking knife through its brain and even when they tour like I went to see their 20th anniversary tour of Meantime and it was okay a little bit tragic there was something a little bit distasteful about it I mean quite apart from the fact it was a massive power failure in the venue and the whole show kind of fell apart it, it just something feels disrespectful to their legacy but how do you tell an artist stop pissing on all the great stuff you did early on like give it up it's cool do something else you maybe do still have something to bring to the table but can we just can we not bastardise this this previous project Henry Bogdan and John Stanier I don't know if they're still not in talking terms of Paige Hamilton but after the tour for Aftertaste they split in 1998 and Hamilton said, you know, after like 1,600 concerts together, however many hours, 22 dates they did in 21 days. I don't know if he's been facetious or if they actually did like an in-store. He was like, they could barely look at each other. It's like they hated each other's company. And when he tried to get the original lineup together for the anniversary shows, etc., I think in some cases he didn't even reply to him. I mean, he still speaks in glowing terms about his ex-bandmates. He still speaks very highly of John Stanier. Um, But yeah, to give a little bit of context, just very quickly, like, Paige Hamilton was from Portland in Oregon. He relocated to New York. They kind of became a little bit involved in both the New York art scene and a little bit of the New York hardcore scene. Helmet seemed to subvert a lot of those tropes. They wore shirts. They wore shirts, mm-hmm. indeed. I, I read about that a lot, about about Helmet. Did you? Yeah, they seemed to not dress like normal metal bands or normal hardcore bands. They wore shirts. And that was really progressive and cool in the 90s to wear shirts. Edge. (laughs) Paige Hamilton had originally been in a band called Band of Susans. (laughs) 
Band of Susans was odd They were like a bit like Sonic Youth meets My Bloody Valentine They had three guitarists at all stages throughout the career of that band And they had this approach where each guitar would contribute to a wall of noise in a different way So one would literally maybe just feed back for almost all of a song The other would play like root notes The other would play some kind of weird middle A anti-solo They constructed these big walls um, But the tunes were actually quite melodic And I think that informed, you were saying why did Helmet have two guitarists I think that's a big part of it Certainly in the early Helmet stuff You can hear the squall, the layers of things And I put some of the tracks on that that compilation And they did have this slightly shoegazy approach And sort of also quite a post-punky no-wave approach Yeah, there was a lot more dynamic going on I think there was a lot more highs and lows I think one thing you can say about the album we're doing right now Is it's quite narrow in its sound Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas the stuff before you focused though, yeah. I think I think like narrow. I don't I don't want that in the pejorative sense because I think the reason this album works so well is that it's very focused. A lot of metal bands. I mean, there's a very metal thing to do that as well. Having two guitars playing the same thing sometimes as well, just for chunk. You know, True, which, there's a lot of that on this. Record. I think on this one, but my point with some of Helmet's earlier stuff is that especially the stuff that came off the back of Band of Susans, he had especially at the ends of tracks, and you'll notice that I get your point with the chunkier riffs early on in the songs, but but for a lot of the tracks, they actually descend into chaos. They did that with things like Sinatra on mm-hmm. Strap It On, and they do it with a lot of the stuff like FBLA2 towards the end of Meantime, where one guitar goes off in one direction, usually Hamilton, and it's usually an anti-solo. It's, it sounds like it's been played wrong. It sounds like just some dafty like, messing about, while the other guitar plays these big open chords. You end up with like a kind of wall of noise With this kind of really unsettling thing Weaving through it It's a technique they use Maybe like three or four times on this album alone And that reflects that band of Susan's genesis Now that's something they stopped doing as much In the later parts of their career It became less of a feature of their songs They were more direct A bit more, dare I say it, even grungy Verse chorusy. But that use of the two guitars where, Like I said, where they get to almost the middle point of a tune And then the two guitars Go in a fork in the road And they branch off And the song ends differently It's a big part Even if people haven't really Thought about why they like Helmet songs Why they have a sense of abandon Why they're called noise rock And not just alternative metal It's the ends of the songs It's the it's the descent It's the freedom That the band allows to happen In the ends of those songs um, Band of Seasons Is really worth listening to Hamilton wasn't in them For very long He did that album He did a John Peel EP um, He'd actually only Get into that band as well After he had been playing With the composer Glenn Branca Who died earlier this year. Hamilton has since fallen very far from the tree. I mean, he played on like Linkin Park's sixth album. I saw that, yeah. <laughs> it's like a hell of a, a nexus moment if you're looking for it. He's <laughs> also in kind of mid period, he's in stuff like Troublegum, the therapy album. Therapy was a band that really this reminded me of. Yeah, and I think Therapy are a band we'll probably end up coming back to because they're another band that their influence is really understated. I'm unfamiliar with with Therapy and and I don't know much about them at all. 
They actually were a band that, tro- that kind of chart bothers for a while. They had a song called Diane that was that was pretty up there. I don't know where it charted, but I can see us actually probably coming around to doing something on that because that was a period where noise rock and new approaches to alternative rock were coming to the fore and Helmet were a big part of that. That's why he's on that album because they really influenced a lot of these bands to push in new directions. Hey people, uh, this is probably the last time of 2018 where your listening pleasure will be interrupted as we pursue Cash Dollar. And I'm going to take a different tack this time. It kind of occurs to me that the problem here isn't that people don't want to pay for the podcast. Almost anybody we speak to is more than happy to pay for this, uh, be it at the kind of nominal suggested price of a pound an episode or sometimes substantially more if you're Fritz. But... What it seems to be is most of it, you know, oh, my phone's over there. Oh, oh, I just shut my laptop, my my payment page. Oh, I can't be bothered. Don't I'll do it later. It really seems to be more of a convenience thing. So if, for example, as part of your New Year's resolution, you can bring yourself to actually just open up your laptop or your phone and go to unsungpod.net forward slash donate and make a donation to the podcast because everybody seems pretty cool and willing and appreciative of the efforts we're making. That would be excellent. We would really appreciate that. You can also at the same time perhaps advise us as to ways that we can sort of mitigate people's, uh, you know, busy lifestyles, but also like uh, we're all a bit lazy and stuff from time to time I I relate more than most maybe you can tell us ways that we can make it easier for folk to just donate without it being a pain in the ass yeah really I think it's just about that little tiny bit of effort so if you can just press pause go to the unsungpod.net forward slash donate stick something on there it'll really help us in the new year we're gonna get some new mics to do some interviews for next year because that's one of our resolutions and we're gonna generally try and move things along improve the production quality and stuff so if you can help us do that that'd be fantastic and we really had a lovely time in the last 12 months doing this not gonna lie i'm looking forward to a couple of weeks off but it'll be a pleasure coming back as well so we'll take you back to the podcast but yep please just hit pause go and stick something on it as a christmas present to us uh we're very grateful or just give us some advice on how you think we can make that process easier for the modern human bye So, like, Why meantime? <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Why meantime? Exactly. As I said, there were arguments for for me for all of the first four albums. I thought you were going to go with Betty. I did. So did, I think, a few of the listeners. Helmet and Amphetamine Reptile, the, the, the label that they started on, were very, very closely associated in people's minds. Amphetamine Reptile have dealt with some amazing bands. And they're a label that we probably haven't talked about enough because they are so intrinsic to the early 90s sound, so intrinsic to the way that alternative rock went. But Amphetamine Reptile had bands like Surgery, The Janitor Joe, Cows, Guzzard. They also had Today's the Day. Today's the Day, Unsane. Yeah. 
Unsane, Melvin's, uh, Brainiac. Who they released some Jesus Lizard as well, didn't yeah, they? Yeah, they did Jesus Lizard. Amrep is a brilliant record label, and there's some compilations out there that are really, really excellent ways to get into Amrep and their back catalogue. Something we'll probably touch on a lot more. But Strap It On was Helmet's like full-length debut. In, uh, it was released in '91, although some places say '90. <laughs> One of the genius moment uh, aspects of Strap It On is that it's 30 minutes long, more or less. It's much more noise rock, really staccato in points. It's much closer to meantime and feel. They make a lot of use of fucking with your preconceptions about the length of a bar and where a riff is about to go. Um, I think it was referred to in the press by uh, one writer as metal minus the clownish cliches, which I think is a really good way to discuss it. Really caustic. Um, and for me was a real contender for this I, I, I absolutely love that album And it's actually an album that Because it's so unfussy in its production Has aged incredibly well Because it sounds dated But yet also sounds brutal It is visceral in the way that they wrote And performed the tunes uh, A track on it, Bad Mood Is the height of simplicity Starts with just two repetitions of a riff And then all the rest of the band come in There's a track called Blacktop, which was a really, really good example early on of them overlapping riffs and of of, of Hamilton kind of using his kind of jazz savvy, but translating it into this kind of alternative rock format. famous track amongst Helmet fans is Sinatra which has this like three minute descent into madness outro which is something that they pulled off really well live you can see it in a few videos I actually once went on tour with a Glaswegian band called Fighting Red Adair who owe quite a bit of their sound to Helmet, I think, and who have since various members went on to do other projects. Um, and I remember very clearly during the tour that destroyed that band, and it's a it was a very short tour and an absolute circus which involved the police which involved fights it involved getting thrown out of houses locked out it involved vomit and insane amounts of booze it involved a lot of stuff that shouldn't have happened that's not a great time it was it took years and years off my life the tour had been sponsored by Jägermeister oh always a good sign and for three dates they had been given I think it was like six or eight balls of Jägermeister for mm-hmm. three days Yep. Right. So I'm driving them on tour and they like the guitarist drank an entire bottle of Jägermeister before he went on stage. That is impressive. Right. It, it, 
The results were not I can't, um, I can't imagine he could actually see anything by this point Like, th- I mean he'd had a lot of practice at drinking To be yeah. fair And notoriously so But during the set He got more and more drunk And at first it was fine And the set was devastatingly good Fighting Red Adair are one of the best bands to come out of Glasgow And at some point in the future we'll do Much like the Dundee episode We'll do a little analysis of that period The Glasgow noise rock scene <laughs> This concert, this guy got you could visibly see him getting more and more drunk as the gig went on, as this huge amount of booze went into his system. So they had to encore, because we're in Brighton, of all places, uh, a place called the Freebutt, and uh, basically the guitarist got completely fucked, fell onto the ground on the stage while the band were still playing, and the crowd were like, keep playing. Uh, the bassist and the drummer, who were furious at the other guitarist, started playing Sinatra by Helmet and they got through the first part of the song with the guitarist crouched on the ground playing the riff but by the end of it he just started projectile vomiting (laughs) (laughs) but the thing is the end of the song doesn't really end Mm. it just grinds on and on so on the album it's maybe what four and a half minutes live they made it ten and they just kept the riff going and going and the guitarist was whiting <laughs> all over the stage and by the it whited so much that it was literally running off the edge of the stage like a little puke waterfall onto the ground he couldn't stand up at this point he crawled through his guitar strap fell off the edge of the stage in his own vomit and then crawled through the crowd as their driver I'm like in the crowd face palming because I know I'm going to have to deal with this um, and the rest of the band were still just playing this riff at the end of Sinatra just noise and the bass player is screaming in his face as he's thrown up laughing just watching this unfold <laughs> and honestly like it's the perfect visual for this song the way this song ends is that gig it, it didn't go so well after that the police, the police got involved but you can um, do that every night either no nah, and nah, i mean they, they, they literally broke up when they got back to yeah. the city it was a disaster but the the, the sheer abandon in the band at this stage is incredible there's so much energy in them um, it's telling that one of my favourite songs of all time by Helmet is a track called Impressionable mm-hmm. which I put on the, the compilation yeah. to you guys I've just it, seen that yeah it's not actually on Strap It On it's on the Japanese edition Impressionable is a phenomenal song I can't believe they didn't put it on the main version John Stanier on that uh, and that song is unreal untouchable it's much more traditionally hardcore there's a drum roll, a snare roll in the middle of it that is the fastest fucking snare roll. And he goes straight into this final chorus that is even more furious than the two before. It's a, a must-listen. If you're a Helmet fan and you don't have Impressionable, uh, you really need to get your ears around that. And just also, as a little note, I did the due diligence, and FBLA is a question that a lot of people ask, because <laughs> there's FBLA on this album, and then FBLA 2 on Meantime. It means Future Business Leaders of America. There you go. So strap it on, though, as good as it is, is all the feral energy of Helmet, but without much of the melody. On the flip of that, you have Betty and later Aftertaste, where they'd, they'd passed Meantime, they'd passed that Goldilocks moment for me, the Goldilocks zone of Meantime, where they got the feral energy and they got the, the melody. And they went into this era of being slightly overblown. It's 14 tracks. The album could be maybe three or four tracks shorter. 
Definitely street crab is pretty by the numbers for them. Biscuits for smart is just okay. It's interesting, but it's okay. Clean is like a 6 out of 10 by their standards. Beautiful Love is a needless little segue that just extends the album. And Sam Hell is an odd ending that again prolongs an album that could have been an absolutely dynamite album. The song Milk Toast in that album is a definite contender for the best helmet song of all time. It's on the soundtrack to The Crow and was one of the first things by them that I really got into. Wilma's Rainbow that kicks this off is a really iconic helmet riff. Tick is helmet at their absolutely nihilistic best. Really ugly... The, 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 the pacing, the, the weird structure of the riff. I Know is another example of them using space to allow John Stanier to really come through. A track, and a track for me that I put on the playlist that I gave you guys is a track called Speechless, yeah. which has these gigantic pauses between the riffs, like literally with nothing playing, like dead air, and it is so ballsy. I don't think this album's as mean or as ruthless as either of the earlier two albums um, and I actually don't think the choruses are as strong as Aftertaste. I think it gets a little bit lost in no man's land but I can understand why some people go to it because it is a period of the band when they were at their most vital. They had this and they had uh, Meantime and they had Strap It On all in their live set and they were untouchable in that uh, genre but I really don't think if you're being objective you can say blow for blow it's as good as Meantime. Um, Wanna jump into the Nexus? Yeah Let's jump into the Nexus Yeah that would be ideal Thanks It's the Unsung Podcast Dave Grohl Nexus Need to find a way To connect the show to that guy For playing in Nirvana To hanging with Obama He knows lots of folk So stands to reason We'll find a going to go first in the Nexus I've got two but Dave seems really excited about his I know I kind of need to sort it out a little bit okay I'll go first then okay Mark uh, so as I mentioned when you're talking about Betty uh, and as you mentioned when you're talking about Betty as well uh, Milk Toast is on the Crow soundtrack mm-hmm. it is and it's a beezer that soundtrack's great yeah we'll probably cover that in a soundtrack episode at some mm-hmm. point yeah next so, yep. spoken about that yeah also on the soundtrack is Roland's band mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Ron's band had a guitar player called Chris Haskett. Mm-hmm. And Chris Haskett was also in a band. You know, Henry Rollins introduced Dave Grohl on stage. 
Yeah, no, but we've done that before, so... <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> try to make, Sorry, it, try to make it more interesting here, do you know what I mean? Um, I thought you were the guy that just went in, like, two jumps. I've thought about this one, though, right? All right, okay. <laughs> uh, Haskell also collaborated with many other people in a band or project called Pigface. Yes, I remember that. Mentioned mm-hmm. before. By yeah. the way, which I found as part of my Christmas shopping, and one of our listeners is getting it as his Christmas present, and he doesn't know yet. <laughs> oh, hope he tells us. Uh, Pigface... Also had a collaborator in one Penn Gillette from Penn and Teller. Is that true? That's true. I didn't know that. Oh, I guess we were the... The Libertarian. Yeah. yeah. With a red fingernail, red thumbnail, <laughs> uh, pinky nail, sorry. Um, Penn Gillette was also in a band called Captain Howdy with fucking Debbie Harry. No way, was he? <laughs> and <laughs> Billy West from Futurama. That's wild. Fucking real thing that what, happened. What a fact that is, man. That is superb. Yeah, I, I thought it was worth getting to. And then... Recently in November uh, That's that's maybe going to be up there I mean this could be <laughs> For the Christmas special We've got a favourite Nexus And I, I may be scribbling To change this right yeah. now but so I mean, It's pretty good That's quite a good one Yeah And Dave Mr. Grohl um, Recently played Rapture by Blondie At a gig with St. Vincent and Beck Which was a memorial Or sort of like a fundraiser thing For the Los Angeles County Museum of Arts That is pretty good Mm-hmm. Captain Howdy's brilliant I've never heard of that yeah. That's superb Wow also had, uh, Captain Howdy also had Mark Kramer in it. Who's the that? Producer Kramer He's done a lot of production stuff For a lot of really weird bands Including like John Zorn and all that Okay cool He's actually played uh, organ and stuff For Low On a couple of their records Okay I think I'd know that um, Is it me? Alright Dave um, You're looking at me You've David has adjusted his position No I'm just uh, <laughs> Intrigued <laughs> Sort of like What's this lad going to say Alright so Paige Hamilton In 2003 Had a short But I'm sure passionate Oh he's gone for the same Nexus as me A short but passionate <laughs> Affair with oh, well, Winona Ryder where he goes Winona Ryder Yeah Reiner Reiner Winona Ryder Alright Winona Ryder Where does he go after Ryder uh, Which I actually remember Because I, I used to st- I, I still picked up The occasional copy of Kerrang In 2003 And I remember the photos Of them out as a power couple mm-hmm. So Winona, couple. <laughs> Winona, Laura Ryder uh-huh. uh, was named middle name Laura after the wife of Aldous Huxley. Okay. Who uh, Laura Huxley? Not a though, is it? Carry on. Excuse me, actually. <laughs> no, excuse me, because Aldous and Laura Huxley were close family friends. Okay, I'll give you so that. So it is a connection. Uh, by the way, Winona Ryder's godfather, Timothy Leary. Yeah, indeed. Wow. Crazy, yeah. Uh, Aldous Huxley The family friend Of Winona Ryder's family David <laughs> uh, Wrote the book The Doors of Perception About his experiments With LSD And The Doors The band Took their name From the title of the book The Doors of Perception uh, Jim Morrison Of The Doors uh, The Crawling Kingsnake Himself uh, The Backdoor Man <laughs> The Backdoor Man <laughs> <laughs> As me and Mark Were listening to In the pub On the, on the way here Uh Actually, uh, at one point in his life, had an affair with the singer Nico of the Velvet Underground, or affiliated with the Velvet Underground, mm-hmm. aka Christina Pafkin. Yep. And Nico, uh, who, by the way, was encouraged in her solo career by Jim Morrison. Thanks, Jim. She, at one point in their relationship, apparently dyed her hair to look more like Jim Morrison's long-term partner, Pamela Curson, played by what's her face, Sleep- Sleepless in Seattle, Meg, Meg Ryan. Ryan. Meg Ryan, I think. Yeah. Uh, which apparently really upset Jim Morrison. But uh, Nico was also regarded as Andy Warhol's muse. Um, that's a little bit patronising these days, but she was. Andy Warhol, in 1968, 
nearly died after an assassination attempt by a, a radical feminist called Valerie Solanas, uh, who had tried to shoot him. Valerie Solanas had been trying to get a play made uh, based on something she'd written, and it was rejected by the, the woman who she pitched it to, and she then vowed to go and kill Andy Warhol in order to become notorious so that the play would then be made because it had been written by Valerie Solanas, the killer of Andy Warhol, and she did. And actually, it turned out the woman who she pitched it to, whose name I've forgotten, I'm sorry, phoned the police and said, this woman just pitched me a script. I rejected it. She said she's going to go and kill Andy Warhol. And the police were like, we can't go out there because somebody <laughs> said she's going to kill Andy Warhol. Well, it turns out that hours later uh, at the factory, Valerie Solanas had been waiting for Andy Warhol to arrive and she uh, shot him. And she didn't just shoot him. Uh, but she did, uh, she missed him twice and also uh, caught him as well. And Andy Warhol apparently for the rest of his life had to wear a corset uh, because it held his internal organs in place due to the severe damage. Pierced both lungs, his spleen, his liver, everything. Whatever this bullet was, it was like mm. pretty amazing shot. What? How, how is that even medically possible to have a corset that holds your internal organs in? I don't... That's, that can't be right. He'd be bleeding all the time. Um, no, uh, like apparently um, uh, from the, the operation... The internal musculature was affected in such a way that he would experience a lot of discomfort and pain based on his internal organs, like the scarring, the weakness, the damage that was done internally, uh, shifting. And so the corset was designed to try and alleviate that pain. Ah, so it wasn't actually to literally hold them in. No, it wasn't like he was wide open. <laughs> yeah, you know, it wasn't, like, like, hmm. wasn't like the game of Operation. <laughs> <laughs> but no, uh, he wore this corset to sort of maintain the the discipline of his internal organs and prevent him from uh, excessive discomfort. Now, Valerie Solanas, uh, she also wrote a thing called the Scum Manifesto, which is quite notorious uh, because it advocated the elimination of men. And that was obviously a big partner thinking about Andy Warhol. But anyway, Andy Warhol was scared of hospitals after that. And apparently his fear of hospitals and his failure to go and get diagnosed for a gallbladder stone, I believe, uh, contributed to him ultimately dying as a result of the operation that he eventually got too late for that gallbladder stone. Anyway, blah, blah, blah. Valerie Solanas was played by the actress Lena Dunham in an episode recently of American Horror Story. Lena Dunham spoke in, I think it was 2016, at uh, Howard Stern, the shock jocks, birthday event, despite Howard Stern having publicly said that Lena Dunham looked like Jonah Hill and was raping his eyes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, shit. But she she spoke at that event and it was all in, in you know in good spirits. She she gave as good as she got. And at Howard Stern's birthday event, sometime after Lena Dunham spoke, there was a musical performance uh, by something of a supergroup that featured Robert Downey Jr., Bon Jovi, Steve Tyler, Ben Stiller, Sarah Silverman, David Letterman. And Dave Grohl. Dave Grohl. That sounds that sounds hideous. Oh I'm, God. <laughs> I'm not even gonna lie. What a fucking loving. So I, I should apologise for the length of that. I had a second Nexus. Can I just give you that very quickly? As long as it's quick. Paige Hamilton produced an album called Distort Yourself by the band Institute, which was a collaboration between Chris Trainer, also of Helmet, and Gavin Rossdale of Bush. And as everyone knows, Gavin Rusty was also singer Nirvana. Singer Nirvana, <laughs> yes. Great work. I so Dave, um, we're looking forward to this, Dave. Go on. Dazzles. Paige Ham, and I don't know if you know, but in 2003 had a short-lived <laughs> romance with uh, Winona Ryder. Winona Ryder? Where'd their name come from? 
Uh, I don't care. If I, actually, Winona Ryder isn't her name. She's got a Jewish name. She's Jewish. Is this um, the first time that we've started with the same? I think it all, is. Out of all the necksai, which is improbable, which is a hundred and fifty-six necksai, <laughs> and it's the first one that we've gone with the same uh, starting point. I was talking to Mark earlier on, to be fair, um, uh-huh. and we didn't start all doing. Next eye until about episode thirty four. <laughs> oh really? All yeah. oh, right, that's fine. So it's about it's about seventy or something. Who knows? But the chance of it happening, given how de- how ubiquitous Dave Grohl is, yeah, oh, exactly. it's really slim. So so well, uh, you ubiquitive. I'm drunk. Leave me alone. <laughs> well, no, no, uh, Ryder starred in Bram Stoker's Dracula, nineteen ninety two, directed by Franz Ford Coppola. Gary Oldman, yeah. yeah. Yeah, great film actually. Mm-hmm. Like mad. And I kind of panned at the time though because it was much more of a love story than a horror. Yeah, but it's pretty it's cool aged quite well. Yeah. yeah. And um, the closing credit theme love song for Vampire was written and performed by uh, Dundee's finest so Annie Lennox. Annie Lennox. Annie Lennox. Annie Lennox. Annie Lennox. Annie Lennox was appointed the Glasgow Caledonian University's first female chancellor in 2017. Good fact. Um, taking over from uh, Mohammed Yunus, a Nobel Peace uh, Laureate. I'm, a, I'm very aware of Mohammed Yunus's work. Now, previous... Um, that was not sarcasm. Alumni <laughs> of Glasgow Cali Uni uh, also includes uh, Kevin Bridges, the comedian, uh, Anna Sloan, the curling bronze medalist of the 2014 Winter Olympics. Obviously. And also Gordon Brown, former British Prime Minister. Uh, what? Really? Yeah. He went to Glasgow. He was Cali. the Prime Minister, yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Gordon Brown, as well what as happy? being a fairly useless Prime Minister, uh, is uh, a. To be fair, man. Uh, yeah, I know. Well, he was useless before we knew what useless could be. Yeah, and I mean, he, it was a pretty difficult time, the yeah. whole like, economic collapse. Uh, I mean, didn't exactly do a lot. I mean, Anyway, uh, Gordon Brown is a big fan of uh, <laughs> Wraith Rovers Football Club. Who that, isn't that? That's true. Yeah. Uh, I'm getting going pretty wide here, aren't I? Yeah. How is he going to get back on track? You're actually an ocean away here. Uh, ba- other ba- supporters ba- of Wraith Rovers Football Club include Ian Rankin, the uh, famous Edinburgh crime writer. He's actually got a name, a street named after him in Fife in Carden Den. Uh, is Mark, it Rankin Fife Street? Called Rankin Street. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <It was> called... <laughs> uh, and also Coldplay bassist Guy Berryman. Fuck off. Supports Wraith Rovers. Fuck off. No, he doesn't. That's a true fact. That fucking hipster cock. <laughs> <laughs> he just picked the most obscure fucking thing he could find to uh, be cool. Yeah, so. Um, Guy Berryman um, worked on some What's his sh- name? shite music. Guy, Guy Berryman. 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 He did a collaboration with guys out of Mew. Hang, and hang on, sorry, two seconds. Did you say he worked on some shit music project? Yeah. He's uh, in Copley. Uh, well, obviously. <laughs> I, and they made up the theme for the BBC2 series Amazon. That's exactly what Coldplay are for. Which was then included on... Uh, an album called Songs for Survival, which is like a international environmental charity album. Uh, also appearing on that album, featuring the Addy Tribe, uh, who are one of the most indigenous, <laughs> one of the uh, most populous indigenous peoples in the Indian state of Arunachal Pradesh. Obviously, uh, with they did a song with Skin from Skunk and Nancy. Of course, they did. <laughs> uh, now of course, Skin from Skunk and Nancy <laughs> was. 
the singer in Skunk Nancy. <laughs> Can I just say about about 15 minutes ago, David punched the air, <laughs> and I didn't know why David was punching the air, and I now know why David was punching uh, the air. In 1995, Skunk Nancy supported Killing Joke uh, in the Shepherd's Bush Empire. Mm-hmm. Who Helmet have covered. Who Helmet have covered. Mm-hmm. That would have been a much quicker way <laughs> to get to this. <laughs> and, <laughs> and uh, of course, Dave Grohl played drums on uh, Killing Joke's album, Killing Joke. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. so there you are. <laughs> That, that's my nexus there It was really A beautiful But diversion. I mean I got Gordon Brown And Wraith Rovers And Coldplay in there that's And Andy, special. And Annie Lennox Have you ever seen special. that Episode of The Simpsons Where they're they, they kind of They're going to Chain Scratchy World And they're like Let's never speak Of the diversion again <laughs> <laughs> Or let's never speak Of the shortcut again That's yeah. what that nexus Reminds me of well, Thanks guys I like that That was good Thank you um, So the last bit Fritz, Fritz for Fritz again. 2018 Final Fritz. As good as ever. Oh man. So, yeah, uh, just to pick up. <laughs> Why Meantime? Why Meantime? Okay, so in 95, Helmet had released Born Annoying, which was a collection of their early stuff. And I already said that really touches on some of that new wave post-punk stuff that they also have in their sound. The use of interesting layered guitars. Uh, there's a track in that called Taken which I put on the compilation for you guys. I think it's a superb song. It, first of all, because it uses a stereo image. It's two guitars riffing uh, in this kind of like contrapuntal way uh, and it bobs between the ears. And so if you're listening to it on headphones, it's just a brilliant thing. You can't help your eyes kind of flitting back and forward. And it's a brilliant, direct, brutal, simple bit of music. His vocals in that really unvarnished... I mean, he knows his vocals sound like shit. That's the point of helmet vocals, that kind of... It's just, it's part... It's a a feature rather than a bug of helmet. He knows that that's what he's going for. There's a few good covers in that, actually, as Dave just kind of could have mentioned. (laughs) Primitive by Killing Joke is a a really good cover in that. Uh, There's a song called Oven by Melvins, which can't be an easy song to cover as well because the timings in it are pretty weird. Geisha to Go is almost a tribute to like their post-punk roots. It sounds almost like a bit like a really heavy version of Wire and really shows like Paige Hamilton's kind of time in Band of Susans, I think. Uh, and also there's two versions of the track, Born Annoying. There's the 89 version and the 93 version. Born Annoying is a f- fantastic song. I actually prefer the 1989 version. It sounds a bit more like Strap It On to me. It's a bit more visceral. The 93 version is a slightly more claustrophobic. And it also has like a tapping solo in it, which obviously, given how good a musician Paige Hamilton is, I know he can do, but it isn't good. (laughs) Don't do it, man. The 1989 version of Born Annoying is tremendous. Aftertaste, the 97 album, is really, really good. Aftertaste was recorded as a trio. As I said, the... They hadn't brought Chris Trainer in yet. Mengid, Mengidi, whatever, had left by this point. Uh, it was my personal introduction to Helmet, so I guess it flies in the face of that whole theory about the first thing you hear is the thing you're attached to. But I am attached to it to some extent. I think it's like, 
there's things about this album that make me think of almost like power grunge. It's like stripped back to its elements. It doesn't have the crooning, but it's got the big, thick, layered guitar riff. It's got a lot of drop D in it. There's a lot more choruses and hooks than any of the earlier stuff. Um, the only thing about this album is, again, it's a little bit flabby. I think there's three or four tracks that probably could have come off it. It's also a little bit more po-faced. Helmet seemed a little bit more playful earlier on, even though they were subverting a lot of like hardcore cliches and tropes of like this macho genre. This album is a little bit sort of serious. And it's and it's it's outlook. It does have some very good tunes. Uh, I think renovation, the second track, is up there with one of Helmet's best, including the chorus. Birth defect. Uh, is really punchy and nasty, and it kind of harks harkens back to some of their earlier stuff. One I love personally is a song called High Visibility, which I, I put on the, yeah. the compilation I sent to you guys, where they strip it all down. And it's really like Henry Bogdan, John Stanier, for a lot of it, with Paige Ham- Hamilton singing over it. really simple riff motif that is very cleverly used uh, and also a really memorable tune albeit a bit understated although for for every one of them there's tracks like broadcast emotion harmless insatiable and even the opening track pure i think are okay mm-hmm. they're they're good but it, it could have been a leaner album i think it, again it's an album that could have been stripped down to 10 or 11 songs like meantime and all the songs would have benefited as a result but it is overall, for me, very underrated. It's seen as being a more commercial turn for the band. Uh, as I say, it's it's a bit less obstinate. It, it, in the Goldilocks metaphor, it leaves a lot of the kind of hotter, nastier, early stuff behind and goes more for that tuneful, grungy thing and maybe over-eggs that pudding a little mm-hmm. bit. But in their canon, it's a really, really good record. And I think if you do, if you like Helmet and you don't own the four, the, the first four albums... What the fuck are you doing? Um, they broke up actually after that album. The, the tour from that, like I said, was the one that really killed them. Mengid, Mengedi had already left in 93. Um, but been, by, been in Biohazard. Yeah, and he also formed the band Handsome. We've mentioned a few times in this podcast and uh, Handsome are really good. They only had one album, self-titled. Um, Handsome's album sounds like a very polished version of this kind of era. Helmet. A polished helmet. <laughs> <laughs> um, a polished purple throbber. Exactly. Um, but as I said, the, the band really kind of fell apart. Now, what happened after that was that it was about six years of a hiatus Stanier was out of the picture, Bogdan was out of the picture. You just really had Chris Trainer who'd come in for the Aftertaste tour and Paige Hamilton. Now they, somewhat foolishly in my opinion, got back together again, did Size Matters in 2004, which was much anticipated because people really thought maybe this is going to be amazing. 
Um, that album performed really badly and ended up getting them dropped by Interscope. Hamilton was kind of in full creative control mode. The album's totally competent, but it's very uninspiring. It has some moments, uh, a song called Crashing Foreign Cars, which is really not bad. It's pretty full on. There's a hell of a lot of filler in that record. They followed that in 2006, trying to get that bottled lightning effect of their early career. They actually re-recruited Wharton Tears, who'd done their first album. And the album does have a much rawer feel to the production. You can hear them deliberately trying to rediscover the naivety and it sounds very forced. It, it's not terrible, but at times it's terrible. It's, it's, hard to, it's a hard thing to articulate. At times, if you're in the album and you get snapped out of it, you're like, holy shit, this sounds like a bad Helmet covers band. But then at other moments in the album, like the track Brand New, it, it's kind of good. Until you realise that this is the sound of a band ripping off Helmet. So this is the sound of the zombie Helmet ripping off Helmet. And that's kind of distasteful. It's actually the song Barn New, as good as it is, one of the reasons it's good is because it's almost identical to Turned Out from Meantime, at least for the first minute and a half. Also, like the fucking album cover for this album is so bad, it 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 looks a little bit like an aircraft pilot who's got one of you know those towels that you pull in a toilet where you pull it down and then it, it only goes so far and then you pull it down and it only goes so far to dry your hands. Like it looks like that's over his face. Mm. I mean, it is moronically bad. The, the the it's a sketch. I don't know what the fuck they were doing. 2010, they did Seeing Eye Dog. The the cover looks like it's a demo by some high school band. It's terrible, basically. Why is the band still going at this point? can't find this album on Spotify. I don't know if that's a coincidence or not. And then 2016, they did an album called Dead to the World, which is just not completely dreadful, but completely irrelevant. Like Nothing new brought to the table. There's a track on it actually called Bad News, which has the doubled vocal effect and the kind of diminished poppy jazz chords of Foo Fighters. It really sounds like Foo Fighters. Is that possibly because it's got Bill Steven as a co- Bill Stevenson's a co-writer who is who was in Black Flag and is in the Descendants as a drummer? I don't know. I could have a lot to do with it. 
Mm-hmm. Possibly he, he was one of the He is one of the key songwriters In The Descendants so. The only thing is Hamilton is fiercely protective Of his status As the pilot Of mm-hmm. Helmet The project As much as Bill Stevens Is a big character I find it pretty hard To imagine that Hamilton Would let many people Encroach on his songwriting well, He's listed um, as a co-writer On that in Red Scare It's in the credits Well maybe then Also That album has By far their worst song A track called Green Shirt It's it, a Costello Elvis Costello cover It is a horrendous decision to cover that song. But you tease, you flirt, and you shine all the buttons on your green shirt. You can please yourself, but somebody's gonna get it. It is so bad. It is fucking unforgivable. I don't know what they were thinking. Uh, and I think that kind of stands there as like an example of what the fuck happens. How many years later is that? 18 years after they originally broke up, you've got this one guy now who's just assumed control of this 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 brand and is just, without any dissenting voices now, steering it deeper and deeper and deeper into the junkyard. What are you doing? Move on. John Stanier moved on. He took a year out from drumming. Like he, he apparently, after 98, basically went on hiatus himself and rediscovered his mojo and got into battles and Tomahawk and all these great projects that had something new to bring to the table. Henry Bogdan apparently went and started playing steel guitar, lap steel for a bunch of other projects, country projects. Why has uh, Paige Hamilton been so resistant to the idea that Helmet as a relevant entity may be done and maybe it's okay to do something new without diminishing the previous quality everybody that tunes into their newer material especially as a result of say this podcast is like what is this shit and you're having to immediately disentangle it from their good early stuff and you're like i shouldn't have to do that admit that it's a different cast it's a completely different outlook on music move on do something else there's there's no shame in that i think they're a perfect example of when that should have happened how, how familiar were you guys with Helmet? One of my one of my best friends who I've played in a couple of bands with. Um, he's a huge Helmet fan uh, and a huge Wellhaven fan. After listening to this, after uh, also after listening to Wellhaven, I can totally understand where his guitar playing comes from. Um, both, ha- you, you know, it's funny you mentioned them because I hadn't considered that, but both have a very distinct and very innovative approach mm-hmm. to heavy music. That is like I find Wellhaven have a lot more groove though. Yeah, they're definitely a much more groovier band. Because I think part of what Helmet is is this very rigid, sort of constrained thing that they have going on. So their record comes, I mean, the record we did comes 10 years after this one. Yeah, and and this, they said themselves, this massively influenced it. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, you know, you're trying to appraise it on its merits rather than... For me, Helmet were a band that I missed, I think, because of my age. I kind of got into metal when Mm -hmm. they were over. But I got into bands that they had influenced, you know, so when I was 14, uh, it was, you know, 1999, 2000, so I was hearing a lot of the stuff that was Corn and Deftones. Yeah, exactly, and Willhaven, exactly. Yeah. Previously, and I think I downloaded, you know, I'd probably downloaded a couple of the big ones off LimeWire or whatever to, you know, (laughs) educate myself. But it's interesting that it never stuck with me when I was 14 I immediately went to Pantera uh, and I didn't immediately go to Helmet and I wonder why that is there are, ba- there are, there are two bands that I think you'll find in a lot of people's like, libraries though like if you like Pantera there's a very good chance you'll like Helmet yeah both on the Crow soundtrack I mean you listen to Turned Out that's true actually the badge is the Pantera track mm-hmm. that, isn't it? you listen to Turned Out and there's definitely parts of uh, Vulgar Display of Power on that <laughs> Turned Out's a really really particularly good song yeah 
But for me, it, it just doesn't quite have the groove of it. And also, like, the production isn't nearly as crushing as Pantera either. It's less metallic, I think, and that's why... Yeah, it's definitely less of a fully metal album than mm-hmm. Pantera. I think that Helmet are noise rock, the definition of noise rock at a lot of points, but also alternative rock, yeah, more so than metal. They seem to have somehow completely missed the grunge label, somehow. Yeah, very, I mean, they this are record an American, is really fucking 90s. Yeah, they are an American band that came out in 1992, with the riffs First of all They were on the opposite coast though. I know we, we, we've yeah, talked Yeah I suppose yeah. Geographically speaking He moved He would have been in Portland Oregon But he moved to New York City And ended up much closer To bands like Biohazard Than he did Soundgarden But there are points In Helmets Cannon Where they do riffs Like Soundgarden where they Especially well, I mean they cover Melvins mm-hmm. And they were big into Melvins The two bands were on the same label I'm sure they played together A number yeah. of times Bad Motorfinger came out Like a couple of months Before this like I read a lot about the jazzy chords and things that I was expecting on this record actually just kind of sounded a bit like Soundgarden uh, but without the lead guitar like you listen to uh, You Borrowed and then you go and listen to Outshined or Room a Thousand Years Wide and it's kind of the same riff and the same sort of chord progressions happening there It was yeah, it was a lot more more grungy than I was expecting. Yeah, I think Helmet though. I mean, they got grungier. Uh, Betty is a little bit grungier, and Aftertaste is like a polished version of grunge. As grunge kind of went into mainstream, mm-hmm. yeah, and his vocals developed a, a yeah. more melodic sort of slant. But I do think that one of the things about Helmet is that they were all about bursting the bubble, the pompousness of things like grunge, and they would probably balk at a lot of those comparisons because. Whether I mean I I fucking love Soundgarden as a band, especially their later career, but they were incredibly pompous and shirtless, and, and as we know, Helmet liked a good shirt. But loved a good shirt. A lot of what Helmet did, without overcooking it, they subverted a lot of tropes. They subverted the tropes in the East Coast with Biohazard and the macho vest wearing bullshit agnostic front. All these bands, they 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 could play with them. But they also had no, nothing like Agnostic Front, though. Nothing like that. Them. That's not. That's actually not strictly true, man. See if you go through Agnostic Front's earlier stuff when they slow down, going into beatdowns. A lot of it is very like Helmet, and a lot of Helmet's earlier stuff, the faster stuff, overlaps that. Biohazard obviously is a lot more obvious the comparison. Without being too apparent, they really tried to subvert those tropes, but equally, whilst being grungy and stodgy and down-tuned, they tried not to lean into this over-earnest stadium rock of the West Coast and the grunge explosion. So they were kind of like in no man's land a little mm. bit. But yet by being in no man's land, by not fitting into either of those scenes perfectly, they forged this new thing. I would agree that they're in a no man's land, but I am aware that you you bought me some lovely Christmas presents here today. You've also given me some ginger beer. Uh-oh. <laughs> Marks. And you've never been more excited about an album in your life. But also I have to get revenge for how much you fucking slagged Carly Rae Jepsen yesterday, right? <sighs> They are in a no man's land 
But like for me, it's they're in a no man's land in that they don't have the intensity or disness of like out rock stuff like Jesus Lizard. They don't have the groove or the heft of Pantera. They don't have like the progressive ideas of ministry. These are like all bands that are coming out like 1991, 1992. They don't have the melody or the depth of Soundgarden and like that sort of stuff. And they don't have the anger of hardcore stuff like Biohazard, Roland's band. To me, I wanted to like this record. I thought I was going to like this record, but it just completely left me flat. I struggled to give a shit about it. I was just like I listened through their stuff, and to be honest, I think their earlier stuff was way more interesting that's because they were trying to I do more stuff. Yeah, yeah. I, I, and I was like, "There's things going on there," but what they did was like they seem to have stripped things back to a very focused and very clear and very rigid and constrained sound on this album. Yeah, I just could not get. I was like, I was very bored, and I, I'm very aware of how influential they were. And I think if I heard this. In 1992, I'd been like, this is fucking amazing. But having seen bands build on this for 25 years, and also bands do shit versions of this, it's kind of been... my own band. It's it's kind of been tainted for me. I was only hearing the cliches in it, even though I'm very aware that those cliches weren't around when it came out. I think that's interesting. I think it says a lot about your tastes, because... All the things you just said, so the machismo and aggression of Biohazard, the pompousness, the stadium rock of Soundgarden, the kind of arrogant groove rock swagger of Pantera, the atonality and sort of febrile nature of Jesus Lizard. Helmet didn't have those. And and for a lot of people, those were the things about those bands they hated. Like a lot of people loved Jesus Lizard when they kicked into a thumbscrews. A lot of people loved Pantera when they weren't total douchebags, which was kind of unavoidable because they were. A lot of people loved Biohazard for the riffs, but as soon as he opened his mouth, they were like, fuck off. And a lot of people were like Soundgarden, but they just couldn't get past the fucking pompousness of the whole thing. And Helmet were the band that eschewed a lot of those alienating characteristics. So I totally respect what you said in the sense that you love those eccentricities. You love people leaning in, pushing these boundaries of these different parts. Yeah, but I'm also, I'm aware, I'm looking at all of these records as an outsider because these records all came out when I was six years old. So I'm just looking at You weren't listening to them. What the fuck? (laughs) So I'm going back and I'm just listening to these things musically. Yeah. I'm not necessarily thinking about where they stand culturally or... or Totally, um, but sensibilities-wise, it is interesting that the eccentricities or the, the exaggerated aspects of those bands are a lot of what drew you to them. Whereas well, those no, exa- it's the songwriting and the riffs and the production. Yeah, but like, I mean... I listen to Bad Motorfinger, I really like the riffs. I don't particularly like the th- crooning. I've never watched Soundgarden live and I couldn't give a shit what they're li- like live and, you know, like Chris Cornell's Igor Charisma or whatever. And with Pantera, it's like that crunching riff and the groove. These are all things that were just missing for me for Helmet. And I really gave it a go. There's something about their constrained rhythms that just I could not pick up on. And I, I wish I liked it. But to me, it just it, it was like angry in an old man sort of way it's rather not, than I mean- a young... It's not so much, yeah, it's, there's not a lot of joy, I'll totally agree with that. It's more, it's not so much joy, it's more of that kind of Chris Morris awareness of what's going on and avoiding falling into those and little nods to the fact that this is something you expect us to do, we're deliberately not going to do it. This is something that by doing it, we are now deliberately distancing ourselves from this band. So for example, Biohazard, on a riff basis, that band kicks ass. 
as a band, they're ridiculous. They're, they're, it's impossible to take a Biohazard record or video seriously. Likewise, with early Soundgarden, I mean, Super Unknown's a different kettle of fish, let's put that to one side, but anything before that, I cannot, with a straight face, listen to Bad Motorfinger, given the sheer pretentiousness of that music. There are great riffs, but I have to try and get round the other circumstances. Pantera, the cheeseball, corny metal stuff. Now, what I mean is... I think um, it's interesting to say about Pantera, man, because... Bugger Display of Power came out the year before this record, right? And that was fucking, at the time, that would have been straight up metal, right? That would not have been cheesy. It is totally cheesy now. It's OTT, It's not even though. that cheesy. Cowboys from no, hell. It's got super cheesy. No, I mean, no, no. They, were, they were a fucking hair Come metal on. band to begin with, I mean, though, right? Vulgar Display of Power is OTT macho as fuck. Of course it is, man. And it's got Helmet. a fucking guy punching another guy in the face. Yeah. The cover. <laughs> like, <laughs> no, that's exactly it. And Helmet, but Helmet, even their, like, even their imagery, the whole thing about Helmet, the name of the fucking band, the, the, everything about them was a very, very subtle play on that. An awareness of we're working in a, an environment here where this machismo is a huge currency. But Helmet really did a lot to subvert that. And that subversiveness is what makes them different. Now, I'm not disputing what Dave says. I totally, I, I really respect that as an appraisal of this album. But all I'm saying is it's interesting how that divides people because some people were really alienated by that machismo of Pantera and Biohazard absolutely yeah and and other with, people with good reason and know. those people like me like a, a number of the bands that I grew up playing alongside the people in my own band we went to bands like Helmet we still loved the riff but we could not abide those metallic tropes Dave's a guy that can listen to that and put it to one side I'm, I'm not a guy that can listen to that and put it to one side and so for me Helmet was the answer Helmet was the, the band that I went to when I wanted that riffery and I wanted that slight sense of self-awareness without being overly nudge nudge wink wink they were that compromise maybe as a boy from the Highlands who didn't get to see like a heavy band until he was 18 because nobody fucking played in Inverness Terrorvision. I'm very removed from the type of people that go to those gigs and also I just I didn't go to a gig until 2002 so when I listen to Pantera or I listen to Soundgarden I'm removed from those things that you're not removed from mm-hmm. and I can totally see and respect why Helmet were this band that stood out you know um, it, was, it was okay to like Nirvana and to like Helmet it was not particularly okay to like Nirvana and to like Pantera because Pantera were on the cusp of that cock rock part of the industry that was as we know slightly racist misogynistic chauvinistic and helmet were not and that was the thing so growing up being a nirvana kid i can love helmet unreservedly because none of those things went along with that band whereas those other bands a lot of those things went along with them and helmet were on the right side of that line yeah i think because i've come to helmet later because of this podcast and because of the people i know can i just say we have so many sound bites of innuendo yeah i know <laughs> I quite like Helmet. So um, you were saying because you came to Helmet later. I came to Helmet because Helmet came later to me. <laughs> um, At you. Uh, on you. On me. Uh, in the beard. Uh, <laughs> because, because I discovered Helmet later. <laughs> we're not going to escape just, it, man. Yeah, just, just take it. Just take gone. it full it's on. It's fucking gone, man. Take the helmet. Just I have multiple, multiple helmets. Yeah, take um, it on the chin. <laughs> if you can find it. Um... <laughs> Because I happened upon this record later. <laughs> meantime, meantime, yeah, I can't, I can't separate the the cheesy new metal riffs that I grew up listening to from this record because they come from this record and they also come from Pantera as well. Like we talked about the new metal bands that that, yeah. that were like responsible for it, but Pantera, pretty much all new metal bands. In fact, pretty much all metal bands since Pantera 
fucking play still play Pantera riffs and, and new metal bands yeah like, but Sepultura as well man Pantera were not the discovery of they were not but they, had, they were the biggest band right at the time that had the most amount of groove which is what automatically played into a new metal now Helmet obviously had some groove but they were not as groovy as, as no. Pantera were and they didn't try to be yeah However, you have to remember, man, that Helmet also informed math rock. Helmet, the whole the the whole concept of like irregular bars of like five four 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 five four. Yeah, Helmet were pioneers of that. So the groove aspect of it wasn't as big a priority. That's true. But right, so uh, classic Wikipedia, right? But it's got a list of all the bands that Helmet have influenced. This is a long episode, right. and it's <laughs> yeah, I know, and it's great because you know it's I can totally recognise. How it, they've influenced bands like Mastodon, like Botch, very much so. Uh, yeah, like so Norma Jean, um, Norma Jean's like guitarist, Death said Tones, that, obviously. Norma Jean's guitarist said that Helmet is the band that made him start playing guitar, yeah. and that he's only ever aspired to be as good as that band, and indeed Tool as well. Uh, but then you also look Cheville, um, Cheville. Uh, Lost Cheville. Prophets, Linkin Park, Godsmack, hey, Stained, Three Days Grace. Stained. When I listened to it, I was like, oh, I can hear a lot of the shit that they have. That's not their fault. No, I know, but like l- going back to it, have Rage Against that- Machine made Limp Biscuit. Yeah. Like, Rage Against Machine made all like head pee. <laughs> Faith, Come on, Faith, I mean, Faith No More. Let's be honest, Faith No More. More than any of these bands, I know, Faith No More. But I listened yeah, to totally. Faith No More yeah. when I was a teenager, so hey. it's been untarnished. Going back and listening to this for the, okay, the first okay. proper time, yeah, I get well, all the. You know it's what? the same experience you had, like you guys had once in the FI or against me as well. It's like yeah, it's coming true. to yeah. this later, it's a thing, you know. It's like yeah, it's, it's difficult yeah. to look at it out with context. Yeah, of, I mean, of what it's you, you hear the decades of pish that's come after it. I get that. And it's the same with Descendants as well, mm-hmm. man. To be fair, but I do think one of the things that the reason I made that playlist up for you guys, and by I think we will put the playlist up on the, the yeah. thread so that the, the the audience can hear what we have. The only problem yep. is that Spotify doesn't have some of the stuff, so we'll try and work out a way to do that. But um, one of the reasons I gave you that playlist is because, Dave, I actually I had like a little instinct that maybe you would kind of feel this, and I, I totally understand it. Um, but I think for that reason, the early, early stuff, strap it on, the stuff on Born Annoying. The early stuff you is what get. I got into yeah, because, because it's, it's noisier and furious. it's, it's, it's more so visceral. visceral. Yeah. Exactly. And it's just more energetic, less boring. Can I ask <laughs> how many people in 2018 said the word visceral at exactly the same time? Oh, look at that. We are on the same fucking page. <laughs> um, right, so just, you, you know, very quickly, we have to finish this episode because it's an epic and we've still got to get more drunk. The first track, in the meantime, is an iconic riff by Helmet. The way the track opens, the actual riff itself, the melodic release in the chorus, it's it's just a fucking absolute riff fest that song and the the, the, the drum work at the end Boring as well. Riffs, but riffs. Right. <laughs> <laughs> track two Ironhead is another like really obvious subversion of New York hardcore, I think, at the time. sounds really simple but the overruns in the bar really fuck with you and he knows what he's doing the vocals are really ugly it's got that trademark kind of anti-solo 
that Helmet did so well. Uh, track three, Give It, is the first point in Helmet's career as well where they said we are not just a hardcore band. It's the first point where they really embraced melody, albeit awkward and difficult and still quite heavy and quite sludgy. The riff timings and that really helps unsettle you. And there's like a really lethargic kind of druggy chorus that's in it. I love the line as well. It's in that song, "Killing Hurts," uh, but it has to be done. I just think like little sound bites like that were vintage helmet. Track four, our namesake, unsung, the most listened to track on Spotify by quite some margin, and the whole of Spotify. For helmet, yeah. Oh, okay. Um, it, that song is a masterclass in like musical economy. I think it's mm. it's it's a rock song that is full of riffs. It's full of ideas, but they've obviously it probably was two three minutes longer when they first wrote it. They've stripped it back. It's lean. There's a lot of space in it for John Stanier to come through. It's a track that I think this is something we've not necessarily mentioned in past episodes. It's a track that has hooks on every instrument. Right, so see in that song, there's vocal hooks, there's guitar, there's bass, and there's drum hooks all the way through that song. So every instrument is pulling its weight, and that's why I think it stands out so much in my head, and it's such a powerful CV for that band. The song Phaser by Quicksand reminds me of that a lot. Well, Quicksand were like contemporaries of Helmet, yeah. and it was a guy from Quicksand that went on to do Handsome mm-hmm. with Mingid. Mingidi. We still haven't established that. Mm-hmm. Um, turned out, Dave mentioned, I love that song. It's got this 5 4 time in. It's thugly. It's got this, like, it, it deliberately plays up the, as Dave said, the, the kind of Pantera New York hardcore kind of tropes, but it, the, the odd timing really un, like, is something those guys just didn't do. They straighten out the time signature at the chorus and in the second verse, but that second verse goes into palm mutes, which is just fucking nasty with an R. And it's, that song just loses its shit at the end as well, which I think is brilliant. It goes back to their noise rock. Um, he Feels Bad is a song that is loads of room for John Stanner to come through. It's a really innovative bit of writing for the time, which I think, again, in retrospect, is maybe easy to overlook. Hamilton is just reining himself in on all those bars and I think it's really understated how much songs like that which are album tracks by Helmet are influential on yeah okay new metal but also the better stuff that followed after it and talking of better the track better I think that rolling kind of muted riff that shifts over the drum signature uh, the really simple chorus which is just designed for motion brilliant and succinct and economical and just really really well used uh you borrowed is probably like a post-grunge thing 
It's got bits of Soundgarden and Melvins and the riffs, uh, but has like a, an overall more of a slacker feel. FBLA 2, the follow-up to the one in the Strap It On. Really great drum beat. Like a really, really interesting drum beat. John Stanier are starting to really come through as like a celebrity within the alternative rock scene. He's allowed loads of room in that and it, it descends into that noise rock thing that Helmet do. Uh, and it also it descends into some of the best Stanier drumming of the first 10 years of that guy's career. Like the end of that song, some of the, the drum parts he plays are just a sign of things to come. They show you what the guy was capable of. And then finally that song Role Model uh, is one of the few points where Henry Bogdan really gets to shine. It's probably the most straight ahead song in that album, but it then goes into the anti-chorus thing. I love that record. I think it ticks all the boxes. Uh, we've got to wrap up, obviously, but just a couple other points to mention. Custard Pie, Helmet's collaboration with David Jow, the cover of Led Zeppelin, is a fucking brilliant cover. Like, absolutely excellent. Helmet were a band that ticked off a lot of boxes with good covers. They did a cover of the song Gigantor, which is the opening credit song of a cartoon. It's on a Saturday morning compilation where they got full bands to cover Saturday morning tunes like Spider Man and stuff like that. Uh, they've got a famous cover of Lord of This World by Black Sabbath and they've also got that legendary collaboration with House of Pain, Just Another Victim. Which is on the soundtrack to Judgment Night, which is another soundtrack. And will be getting played on Saturday night. It will be getting played on Saturday night. So we don't have to ask if you want it in the Discord. Before, before we guys do that, um, I know that you spoke. I know Dave, you've spoken about how you don't like record, and I know you've spoken about how much you love it. Mm-hmm. And much Mark like, hasn't really had a chance to. Yeah, chat much yet. like Calorie Jepsen, I'm kind of in the middle, uh, but obviously, but more on the side of like I actually kind of like this record. We're talking about having he absorbed 25 years of the of the influence and the shit that it's spawned is something that was good and bad. Yeah, yeah, quite difficult to remove when I was listening to it um, from my mind. But there's also stuff about it that I really liked, you know, like the guitar playing is phenomenal, the groove. Can I, can I just rhythm. pick up on something you said there, man? One of the best things about the guitar playing on this is the fact that Paige Hamilton is a world-class jazz guitarist. He underplays all the time. Abs- yeah, exactly. He, 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 he distills that down to the most concentrated, refined points. And it is just like, it is musical cordial. <laughs> Much like Dwayne Dennison, who's similar. It is so interesting that these guys had that training behind them and chose to apply it in this way. I think it's, I think that's one of the things we haven't really spoken about at all in this podcast. 
when it comes to guitar players is usually the best guitar players are the ones that are, the ones that go most unrecognised as well are the ones that know about economy that's ultimately that's what it's about you know the best bands that we all like most of the records we've picked they don't have like flashy playing for the most part right I can't really think of any with the exception of some of the longer records like you know Godspeed You Back Emperor you know the Dirty Three the ones which actually play with more classical kind of components most of the stuff we're talking about is about economy you know it's about getting the message across have, have we had a bad uh, like maybe at the gates it's like the most it's the same though like it's all like although although, although it's quite jumpy it's about economy so none of the songs go for four minutes and a lot of metal bands who play that kind of music are easily going to fucking yeah. bypass that yeah. you know and that's why the record's so good because our record's listen maybe we all maybe the three of us just have ADHD possibly but <laughs> on, on the other hand I mean the Meshuggah record's quite long yeah and I'm actually going to try and suggest a Finnish black metal band <laughs> that, that has four 22 minute songs uh, on its album in the but, next few months amazing. so for the, most, for, the most part, though, for the most part though Spoiler we've alert. remained quite about economy because uh-huh. it is all about the good tunes at the end of the day for us right that's the, kind of the main thing you know Paige Hamlet's a good example of that you know he does he does things not just things that people have ripped off to the nth degree but he does things in a, in, in a really intricate without being intricate sounding way mm-hmm. do you know what I mean no that I know it sounds, I know, like, it sounds exactly like a really weird thing yeah, to it's say it's carefully considered yeah, uh-huh. I just wish he'd fucking stopped that's the sadness of it though right it's like he's obviously still ploughing the same furrow Mm -hmm. which is the the fucking the field's dead man (laughs) I mean okay (laughs) so folks we're gonna put up the the, the compilation that I gave to these guys because I'm I'm a helmet enthusiast (laughs) there we go (laughs) hey I I am an unabashed helmet enthusiast I'm red in the face even just talking about it Um, but uh, I put together like a collection of what I think are some really interesting choice cuts of Helmet across their career. Please have a listen to it because there's stuff mixed in there that is really superb. I think that collection is probably better than this album, but I think this album is the definitive and albeit their most successful, but still under-recognised album in terms of the influence and the prescience that it showed for uh, what guitar music could become in the decades that followed and often did i think it's absolutely still an unsung classic i required reading i think it sounds like an angry dad in a garage (laughs) deciding to start a band (laughs) do you know i literally i kept having you know how you get visions you have like synesthesia my vision for this was an annoyed dad uh, trying to fix a lawnmower and then when it wouldn't work he was like ah fuck it I've got to start a band uh, also it sold 2 million records so it's not that unsung but it sold at 2 million th- records um, at, a, at a time when any alternative rock band sold 2 million records and then man. looking back at the Krang they sold the colour Egypt oh yeah that's true and then looking back at Krang albums of the year 1992 it came 6th number 5 was Ministry Sam 69 and number 7 was Pantera Vogger Display of Power I think in An that particular album. sandwich, <laughs> I much prefer the bread than the filling. <laughs> so funny, but it, I, mean, I still say it's a whopper. I, I think uh, I'm indifferent, man. That was a joke. I know, I know, <laughs> but I'm, I'm I'm tired of the jokes now. <laughs> so many. I'm tired of the podcast. <laughs> I just want to go to bed. Man. Let me sleep. Fuck's sake. Right, kill it. Kill right, it. Okay. It's Thanks. Go and vote on Facebook uh, and also give us some reviews, please. Uh, and we'll see you next week uh, a- talking about. Oh, it's uh, good. Our be year. So good. It's Talking our about our year. Special part one. Thank you so much for 52 weeks. Cheers, guys. <laughs> <laughs>